Today's program was brought to you by Carp Resources, carpresources.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. It is officially spring. Yes. Yesterday was the day that I've been waiting for since the winter solstice. I know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I was reaching for applause and accidentally hit that. So. I, I think that's better. Yeah. I, I'm actually giddy today because it is almost 60 degrees here. It's fantastic. And um, we are... Talking today, it's so great to be back in the studio, and we are talking about Zone 10 today. Mm -hmm. So I am Alice Marcus-Krieg. And I'm Carmen DeVito. And we are, collectively, Groundworks, Inc. We design and build gardens in New York City and the surrounding area, and our show brings the culture to horticulture. So we are now on Tuesdays at 1.15 to 2.15 Eastern Time. Of course, you can listen at any time on iTunes or Stitcher or the website archive. We have a new fat, a new format, a fat format. It's fat. We think it's <laughs> That's fat. That's P-H-A-T because we're in Brooklyn. One whole hour devoted to all things budding. So our show will also now be monthly, which allows us more time to devote to research and producing the show. So as you know, if you've been listening, we've already done Zone 11 and we've done Zone 12 and 13. On each show, we are doing, um, there's a theme, and the theme is land and climate. This country is so big, and we have so much diversity within the land and the people and the weather and the climate. We wanted to highlight that by using the USDA map as a guide. And each show will, will focus on one USDA zone and the people and the places that make it unique. Are you hearing this, politicians? We're going to talk about climate. <laughs> Climate Change. is real. <laughs> Climate is real, and people have a hand in it. On each show, we will talk to gardeners and farmers, extension agents, botanists, writers, and growers who reflect new, unique, and relevant ideas within each zone. We will share their stories with you each month and periodically on our blog, wedigplantspodcast.com, and maybe even create a little zone envy in the process. That's what we're hoping for. So a little bit of background. In 2012, the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, published an updated map that more closely reflects what the weather in the U.S. is like now. In this latest edition of the map, which is a complex um, algorithm uh, used to better analyze weather data from different stations, just like the previous maps, it divides the country into different zones, which are numbered from 1 through 13, and there are some half zones as well. And these zonal numbers tell us what the minimum temperatures are on average in that zone. So each zone has a 10-degree range of minimum temperatures, and each half zone has a 5-degree range. So for example, here in Brooklyn, we garden in zone 7B. That means, on the average, the coldest it gets in our zone is 5 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit. Not warm enough for uh, Carmen's lemon trees to remain outside, but great for lots of other plants. So this map is what growers, gardeners, and anyone working in horticulture uses to determine what can grow where. It's kind of a guide for your patch of earth. So when you buy a plant, it often lists the hardiness zone on the label to help you decide if you can grow it or if you need to bring it indoors for the winter, if it can stay outside or mm -hmm. inside. The USDA map 
in particular is super close to our hearts because it's based on data that re- respects no political boundaries. There's no state lines, there's no town lines, and no congressional <laughs> gerrymandering districts. You can't gerrymander the weather. I'm sorry, <laughs> but that's not going to be possible. <laughs> the map is based on weather data from 1976 to 2005, taken from over 7,900 weather stations throughout the United States. This latest map was produced with a climate mapping technology called PRISM, which is developed at Oregon State University in Corvallis. A lot of the data is available for free to the public, and you can go to the site and plug in your location and get data going back to 1895 for your county. So that's background, and Alice and I like to tell you about this because, you know, some people are new listeners. You can't get there from here. (laughs) So today we're going to talk about Zone 10, uh, specifically Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and Yuma, Arizona, which are two places that are in the same USDA zone, but couldn't be more different in weather and climate, right? Mm -hmm. Now, Zone 10 is a warm place. In some places, it's almost tropical, although it can get below freezing sometimes. In fact, the average lows for that zone are 30 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's represented by orange, or kind of bright orange on the USDA map, and actually doesn't cover a lot of the continental United States. Only parts of southern Florida... The very tip of Texas, kind of near Galveston, and parts of Southern California coast and southern parts of Nevada are in this zone, and also an area in southwestern Arizona, which we will visit today. I've actually, that's actually been a really fun thing about looking at the map, is mm-hmm. is realizing, you know, from the Redlands to Manhattan Island, right? Like where these zones yeah. um, go. So it's really fun to look at. Yeah, and they're interactive now. And, mm-hmm. and as I was saying to Alice, if you print out high-res images of your state or you could do your region, you can really have fun and kind of see, watch, you know, learn it. You learn about the geography mm-hmm. of a place because, it, you know, the climate is so affected by that. So, but before we get into mountain ranges and rivers, rivers, and rivers affect valleys, you know, b- bodies yeah. of water. Um, so anyway, before we get into I just zone feel like 10, I'm back in fourth grade again. I know. I it's, love it. Fourth grade is great. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so before we get into zone 10, we have the privilege of having as our guest a very, very busy man, uh, one of the developers of, the, of this new USDA map, Dr. Chris Daly, who is the director of the PRISM Laboratory at Oregon State University in Corvallis, Oregon. And Dr. Daly will give us some insight into how the new map was created and its usefulness across disciplines. Uh, Dr. Daly, are you with us? Yes, I am. Great. I can hear you. You're very well, highly distorted, though. I think uh, mm. I turned up a little too loud. Oh, okay. Like well, we can hear you very clearly. So let me know if you need us to repeat anything, okay? Okay, great. So um, I'm so glad that you could join us because, as you can tell, Alice and I are very excited about the maps. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. And we're trying to get other people excited about it as well. <laughs> So uh, tell us how the new USDA map got produced and a bit about the the technology, the weather stations and everything, and and how this new map, the creation of it, was different than previous maps. Well, um, first of all, have you uh, explained to your listeners what the plant hardiness statistic is? Should I go through that just very briefly? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Okay, so... So the plant hardiness map is a map of one particular climate statistic, and that is the average coldest daily minimum temperature of the year. So, in other words, how cold would it get in an average year? Okay, good. That's good. That's good to know, to clarify, because we, we kind of... We touched on we it. We touched on it, but you, of course, can much more succinctly explain that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it doesn't reflect how cold it has been or how cold it will be, just how cold it gets on average over a long period. In this case, we use a 30-year period. Okay. So, so we started working on this back in 2007, believe it or not. Um, and uh, after the USDA Agricultural Research Service, or ARS for short, and a technical review team they had put together decided that we had the best technology to do this work. And their decision was based on the work that we had been doing for the USDA since, oh, the early 1990s, producing official climate maps of temperature and rainfall for the country. And this technical review team was really a great group. Uh, they had a wide range of, of representatives there 
from, let's see, horticulture, nursery industries, public gardens, agrometeorologists, climatologists, and also plant scientists. So a pretty good cross-section of people on the team. That's and, great. Uh, I developed the first version of a computer model to interpolate or estimate climate values between weather stations back in 1991 when I was working on my Ph.D. here at Oregon State. And that model is called PRISM, and that's where the term PRISM climate group comes from that I, that I direct. And I developed PRISM based on the understanding that the Earth's geography, which is kind of a fancy way of saying the features on the Earth's surface, like mountains and coastlines, are really what control the patterns of climate that we experience as we travel around the country and around the world. And I designed PRISM so that it could assimilate information on the Earth's physiography, uh, such as a lot of topography and coastlines, and gave it rules on how certain features influence climate patterns. And this enabled PRISM to do a pretty good job in estimating climate conditions where there were no weather stations because oh. there were stations everywhere. Right. So that's why we have a wall-to-wall -wall map that you see on the website rather than just points where stations are. Oh, I understand. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So these, these areas have been between stations have been estimated by PRISM. Mm -hmm. And it does pretty good, pretty well in areas with complicated topography, for example. And we, we were able to, PRISM was really the first model to be able to map things that we really hadn't seen before, such as pools of cold air that develop in deep valleys, uh, steep temperature gradients along coastlines, like you might experience on the West Coast during the summertime. Um, and sharp rain shadows in the lee of big mountain ranges like the Sierra Nevada and the Cascades. So these are things that PRISM does pretty well. So it was a good tool to develop the new plant hardiness map. And uh, we started off, we, have a, we already have a, uh, had a big database of station data, daily values of minimum, maximum temperature and rainfall for a lot of stations around the U.S. We started off with about 12,000 stations and whittled that number down to about 8,000 once mm -hmm. we examined their data and determined that they had enough uh, long long enough period of record to be useful for this mapping, mm -hmm. right? And were they were they stations like in people's you know, who who managed the stations? I mean, was it like individuals or was it state states or, or federal or a combination? Yeah, it's a combination. Uh, the 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 big elephant in the room was the uh, National Weather Service uh, Cooperative Observing Program or co-op sites, and there's. Mm -hmm. Several thousand of those, and they're, they're really are kind of our backbone of our long-term data that goes back to the late and mid-1800s. Wow. Um, uh, so we're really thankful for the co-op. And these are all volunteer observers, so people have these stations uh, in their yards uh, and on farms, things like that. And uh, we also, though, supplemented that long-term co-op network with newer networks, such as the Snow Telemetry Network run by the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service, which is used to estimate water supply up in the mountains of the west. So there's a lot of high elevation stations, which are great, because we, know, we typically don't have data up, up in high mountain areas. And uh, that contributed, oh, about, I'd say about 1,000, maybe 900 stations. We also pulled um, uh, fire weather stations at mid-elevations and also Canadian and Mexican stations to handle the border areas. Right, yeah. They allowed you to do that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's pre-Trump. <laughs> Yeah, Environment Canada, yeah, contributed uh, about over, over a thousand stations. That's and this, great. These data are, you know, you can get these online. Um, you know, they're they're available through the web. So and so. So go on. Sorry, good. Okay, so so what we were looking for was good, good high quality data uh, okay. in daily minimum temperatures from December to March because that's when we'd expect to see the lowest temperature of the year. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, uh, we, we were looking at the 30-year period, 1976 to 2005, and it's important for your listeners to understand why we use such a long period. Um, in climatology, 30 years is pretty common because it's short enough to capture recent conditions but long enough to average out some of those shorter-term variations you get on a decadal time scale. <clears throat> and it seems to really work pretty well overall. And it also matches the role that past winters have played in survival of longer-lived plants, like, like woody species, for example. Right. So um, what were some of the big changes, the surprises, that the data revealed to you, Dr. Daly, versus the previous map? I know that you added Zone 13 to this, to this map. What other, um, what other surprises or changes occurred? 
Well, the 1990 map, uh, which was a previous one that was done, uh, there were probably, I'd say, there's probably three categories of things that contributed to differences between our map and the previous one. One is the station data. We had a lot more station data uh, that we used in the previous mm. map. Uh, the averaging period was different. The 1990 map only used 1974 to 1986, so a very short period. Mm. Right, okay. And, and that happened to coincide with a kind of a, a cold winter period where we had a number of cold winters in the late 70s and early 80s around the country. Um, and also there were differences, a lot of differences in the West just due to a better interpolation routine. Mm -hmm. It looked to me like there were a lot of kind of bullseyes around stations in the old map where they were really, really thinking two-dimensionally rather than three-dimensionally. So they were really taking elevation into account. For example, uh, the southern Sierra Nevada in California was gone in the old map because there were no stations there. Uh, so wow. we had Mount Whitney at 14,000 feet in Zone 8, um, it actually should have been in zone four. Right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. That is a um, huge difference. That's a big swing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big swing. So, <laughs> so that was a case where we actually had a had a, a you know a, a zone zone difference that went negative. But in mo mostly though, we had positive zone changes. I think about half the country went warmer by about one half zone or about five degree Fahrenheit zone mm -hmm. uh, up. Um, and uh, we did have, uh, I think, but I say probably about 40% of the country didn't change. So, okay. so about half changed one zone and about the other half didn't change at all. Yeah, I think we noted, was the Northeast included in that half zone bump? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think New York in that area uh, did, I think, did get bumped up. In yeah. Half zone. Yeah. Cause yeah, I, as a gardener, I remember, are we six or are we seven? Are we six and a half <laughs> or are we seven and a half? And I still feel like that, like... It depends you know, on the day and the year the and the year. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. This year, oh my gosh, we've had this this cold. Well, we had we had a we had a week in the middle of February of sixty and seventy degree weather. Yes, it was gonna, insane. Yeah. That's going to distort things a little bit, perhaps, if it continues this trend. Right. Um, well, it's yeah. On the other side of the country, where I am, we've had a kind of a miserably cool, coldish winter. Right. Uh, just the opposite of what you've had. And you guys got a lot of snow this year in Oregon. We've got rain. a lot of snow, and it's been consistently below normal temperatures with no breaks. Mm -hmm. It's kind of one of those miserable times when it's been cloudy and with a lot of light rain and sometimes some snow, and the temperature is sitting 5 to 10 degrees below normal day after day after day. So it's been kind of miserable um, oh, that's uh, rough. out here. And it, we look over at the east and go, wow, you know, except for that <laughs> snowstorm you had, it's been really pleasant over there. It has, yeah, it has been a great, it's been actually a great winter. So we, we talked about the applications for gardeners and growers, but other people use the data and find it very relevant. Um, Dr. Dale, can you give us a couple of examples of that where, you know, somebody besides gardeners and, and farmers use that, that information? Yeah, there are actually a number of really crazy uses, and I don't by any means know all of them. I'm sure, sure. that I'm not even aware of many of the uses, but I know that... Uh, there are national, like, pest control companies that use the plant hardiness map to figure out when certain pests will be active and where they might be. Right. Cool. And, um, and so that, that is, you know, pests and pathogens and anything that grows are often limited by winter cold, so this is a, a big deal for them. Uh, also, national apparel chains try to figure out what winter clothing to stock. Wow. Map. <laughs> USDA map in use. <laughs> This is Fashion. amazing. Fashion. USDA. You thought it was vacuous. No, no. They are using. See, I knew this. I knew. That's awesome. All the more reason why funding must not be cut. Okay, right, yeah. we just have right. to get the fashion, the billion-dollar uh, yeah. fashion industry. Where's Tommy Hilfiger now? That's right. He should be funding Prism. He did. He did the Highline. Let's get him over to the USDA. To you all. Right. We want to be on the cutting edge of when when uh, when uh, overcoats start changing styles in New York City. Absolutely, you know, that. that's right. Absolutely. Fashion Week, Fashion Week. And you also mentioned to me, Dr. Daly, about insurance, the crop insurance, mm -hmm. right? That was yes. a factor too. Yeah, that's right. There, uh, mm -hmm. I work. I do a lot of work for the USDA Federal Crop Insurance Program, and and they for some of their uh, longer lived crops, such as olives, there there is a certain zone uh, that you you can't get insurance if you try to grow olives in too low of a zone. 
Mm. Uh, yeah. They're sensitive to winter cold, and it's like, look, the risk is just too high that you're going to lose your orchard if you do that. So we're not going to we're not going to insure uh, you. Right. Yeah. That happened so in Italy. Uh, my parents' uh, olive orchard froze. Yeah. This year. Yeah. Oh, is that right? Where is that? Uh, in southern Italy. I don't, you know, in Europe, I don't know if they have zones. They might have something comparable. I was just going to ask about that. Yeah. Like, are other but, countries uh, sniffing around you, Dr. Yeah. Daly? <laughs> they should. Well, though you can't exactly wrap an olive tree. So they, they, uh, they had extended <laughs> cold, unseasonable cold, mm-hmm. and, f- you know, below normal temperatures, even though they're in, in a pretty high elevation. And for the first time in decades, the olive trees bit the dust, or at least have been damaged, mm-hmm. you know, to the point where they're not going to probably produce olives. The yield, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. That's just a sidebar. Yeah, I, I, I lived in Sacramento for a number of years, and, and our house was built in an old uh, uh, olive orchard. Mm-hmm. We had smashed olives all over our decks every every year. <laughs> <laughs> but they seem to be doing just fine. Yeah. So here's a question. Um, how, do, how do cities affect the map? Because it's always so much warmer in the middle of a city. Do you guys take that into consideration? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, the answer is uh, yes, indeed. The, the lowest temperature of the year is typically found during uh, periods where, you let's say, you have an Arctic outbreak from Canada, which is our enemy here for uh, Plant Hardiness Zone Map. The Canadians are not our friends when that right. Arctic air comes down. Yeah, us and, either. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and that's usually so when you get an Arctic outbreak and then things calm down, you get a kind of a cold, clear morning uh, where it's dry, air is dry, and the temperature drops like a rock. The the radiative surfaces of the urban areas, such as asphalt and buildings, tend to bump that temperature up and Mm -hmm. be pretty substantial. Uh, And so we don't have a way of of explicitly saying what's urban and what's not, but mm. we have stations inside and outside of urban areas, and you can see uh, the effects uh, of those urban areas on, on the maps that we do. You can see these little little blobs around Philadelphia, New York City, Chicago, mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. St. Louis, places like that. You can see the urban heat island effect, definitely. All right, one, wait, one more. Carmen's giving me the time. Yeah, I'm but sorry. But I, I have a very burning question. In the data that you're looking at, so minutely, right? Mm-hmm. Minute by minute, you are you are examining this. Can you can you say with certainty? Because I just want to get this out on the airwaves that over the last, let's say, five eight years, the human hand has has impacted the weather? impacted this the climate the climate. Uh, the short answer is I don't think so because it's too short of a period. Ah, uh, okay. Um, this, is, this is one of the issues that came up when the map was released in 2012, mm. and that, was, that happened to be a really, really, it came out in January. There was a really, really warm winter in the east, mm. uh-huh. and people were saying, okay, this is climate change, right? And I said, you know, even the difference between the current map, the 30-year map, which is 76 through 2005, versus the old map, which was 1974 to 86, those are too short a periods to be able to really say what the long-term trends are going to be. In other words, it's too much, they're too much affected by kind of decadal oscillations okay. in temperature. Okay. So even though I think overall in general as we go forward, these, these oscillations will, will keep occurring, but I think we'll see the average kind of bump up little by little. Okay. Okay. We well, that's a, so so these, yeah. these cycles will kind of ride on this longer wave pattern of increasing temperatures, but... Mm-hmm. Just changing, the, the looking at the difference between the two maps is not a good way to, to tell that. So there's not going to be a tsunami of weather change. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, that's a very fair answer, Dr. Daly. I wish we had more time to have you on the air. Um, but Your we, work is amazing. It's amazing. Can you just uh, shout out the the website where people can find PRISM and all the information that's available to the public? Yeah, so our public website is prism, P-R-I-S-M, dot Oregon State, dot E-D-U, and actually, you can, if you have the ability to assimilate uh, geographic information data, the Plant Hardiness Zone Map is now freely available in electronic format. It's so great. Uh, on, on that site. And also, the, the Plant Hardiness website is planthardiness.ars.usda.gov. Thank you so much for being on the show. And maybe we'll have you back when we get closer to the colder zones and we can talk a little bit more. Sure, be happy to do that. Thanks so much for your work. We really appreciate it, Dr. Daly. 
You're okay. welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. All right, stay okay. on the line. We're going to visit Zone 10, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, when we come back. Resources is proud to be a member of the business community that supports Heritage Radio Network. Carp Resources solves food problems. Our mantra is good food is good business, and it's our mission to help you connect the two. From designing regional sourcing strategies and sustainability plans to developing cutting-edge food curricula, we customize your approach to changing the food environment in your communities, marketplaces, or within your own organizations. Our diverse team of thinkers and practitioners apply honed methodologies and tactical experience to each challenge and opportunity. Our unparalleled cross-sector network expands your own, whether you are a philanthropic organization, a community college, a global food distributor, or a children's museum. To learn more, please visit carpresources.com. Well, welcome back to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Um, we are doing Zone 10 today, and we're going to two places, Florida and Arizona. So we're going to start with Florida. We're virtually traveling to Fort Lauderdale today and visiting the uh, Bonnet House and Gardens, which is one of my favorite historic houses and gardens in the U.S. Um, I've, I've gone there quite a few times, and I fall in love with it more each time I go. Um, last time I visited, I got to meet and chat with Denise Cunningham, who is the curator of the House and Gardens, and she is our guest today. Denise, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Great. So I want to start our interview with a quote from Hugh Taylor Birch, um, and I quote, 
Somehow it is the will of God for a man to work the earth. The Bible tells us that the Lord God put man into the world to dress it and keep it. And that's what I like to do to help make the world more beautiful. End quote. So Denise, tell our listeners who Hugh Taylor Birch was and what he came to Florida to do in the 1890s. Okay, Hugh Taylor Birch was a very successful Chicago attorney. Um, He escaped the crowds in Chicago. Uh, It was around the time of the World's Columbian Exposition. And he came down to Florida, and he just fell in love with the area around Fort Lauderdale. And that was in the mid-1890s. You have to realize at that time, there was nothing on the Barrier Island, which is where Bonnet House is situated. The only other building was the House of Refuge that was built for the shipwrecked sailors to uh, get food and water until they could be rescued. Oh, wow. So Hugh Taylor Birch just fell in love with the area, and he was really interested in what he could do with the land. He loved the natural beauty, but he also wanted to experiment with new plantings from all over the world. That's what, that's, yeah, that's one of the things I found so interesting about him, um, that he, you know, he was kind of ahead of his time in that regard. Well, he and David Fairchild down in Miami, mm-hmm. uh, the, the two of them uh, corresponded frequently and would visit each other and exchange plants. You couldn't just go to a nursery back then, so <laughs> right. you, had to, you had to get seeds and cuttings and things like that if you wanted to experiment. So can you tell us what Fort Lauderdale was like? Um, Like what natively was there and what what did it look like? The landscape. The landscape. Yeah, Yeah, there was a lot of sawgrass. Um, There was a lot of scrub. Um, I saw palmetto. It was very um, arid since it was before the days of uh, irrigation. So the plants that were here had to survive without irrigation, um, although we certainly do get a lot of water in the summer months. Yes. Uh, so, and uh, there had been people importing in coconuts. Uh, that's how Palm Beach got its name, is a ship full of coconuts capsized, and they washed up on shore and grew all over, and then they named it. Palm Beach. Oh, I didn't oh, know that. I didn't know that story. That's, that's awesome. great. I thought it was just that they randomly, you know, planted some palms, but that's a great story. Yeah, yeah. I read that when, when Hugh Taylor Birch arrived in Fort Lauderdale, the population was like 10. Right? There were 10, ten, re- people? ten residents in the... In <laughs> yeah, the, in there the, were very few people, and most of them were living um, on the New River. Right. And... And farther inland, right? Uh, nobody, nobody wanted to live on the Barrier Island because there hadn't been a bridge across it. There wouldn't be one until 1917. So if you wanted to get to the Barrier Island, you had to go by boat or swim. Right, right. And far, you couldn't farm very well uh, on a Barrier Island, yeah. I would imagine. And most people, most residents were farming then. Well, it's sand, right? It's, yeah. right. So, so Hugh Taylor Birch. He, he he planted fruit trees, he built a garden, and he built the Bonnet House, right? And the Bonnet House is named for the native plant called Spatterdock Lily and um, nicknamed the Bonnet Lily. And this is, a, this is an aquatic plant, and it kind of fills the water gardens on the property with its kind of sweet little bright yellow blooms. And um, there were, like as you said, a lot of other native plants, as well as some um, specimen trees that he put um, on the property. And and the gardens at Bonnet House are really, really interesting to me. There's not just like the lagoon and beautiful specimen trees, but there's also a dry garden with cacti and succulents um, that's adapted really well um, to the Zone 10 climate. Can you give our listeners a kind of virtual tour of the different garden areas and how they evolved over the years? Okay. Um, well, if you were a visitor and uh, were visiting Evelyn and Frederick Bartlett, who were the last couple to reside here, you'd first come in our east entrance through a very large, ornate gate, and you would drive down an alley that is created with melaleuca trees. And they're a very interesting tree. 
Um, they have a real papery bark. I'm terribly allergic to them, personally. Um, but they were brought in uh, from Australia to drain the Everglades. Mm. And they, they would fly over and drop the Malaluka seeds. And now it's illegal to plant Malaluka trees because they did such a good job on drying up the Everglades. Ah. Are they invasive? So, yes. Okay. And then on the right-hand side, as you're going down this Malaluka Ali, you would see mangroves. We have um, a little dog-leg-shaped spur that comes off the intercoastal waterway to our boathouse, and that was created to bring uh, materials in to build the house originally. Uh, and then you would continue through the grove, we call it the experimental grove, mm-hmm. and it's, it's filled with various types of mangoes, um, pond apples, uh, various kinds of fruit trees, avocado, um, um, star fruit. The lime. And then you'd the continue rank- on to the desert garden that you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. filled with cactus and I such. love that garden. I love it. And you have to mention the Rangpur lime, right? Because he was growing, that became like the signature cocktail of the house, didn't it? Yes, and that's in one of our courtyards. We have the main courtyard mm-hmm. off, the, off the front door that is filled with all sorts of exotic plants that were brought in here. Mm-hmm. And it has a beautiful three-tiered fountain, and it's very lush in, in stark contrast to the desert garden that you, you enter into the courtyard from. Yes. And then off to the side, to our west, is another courtyard that is, um, has, we call it the citrus courtyard, and that features the Rangpur lime, which is kind of a cross between a lemon and an orange, mm-hmm. or a lime and an orange, mm-hmm. and it's bright orange in color, and it's wonderful in a gin and tonic. <laughs> but Ms. Mrs. Bartlett would make a drink with it out of um, maple syrup, uh, Mount Gay rum, and this Rangpur lime. It's, wow. It's quite quite potent. And she had a whole cocktail. Uh, she had a great, like, 40s cocktail bar, um, which is still in, still, the house was preserved as it was in the 1940s and 50s when they were living there. Um, right. And people would have their Rangpur cocktails, their Rangpur lime cocktails in that bar. Which right, is, which is right. very. It's all covered with bamboo. Yeah, it's very uh, evocative. It's great. Yeah, uh, and then it off of that is the Shell Museum, which is a oh. circular room that has pairs of shells from all over the world, and then off from that is the Orchid Display House. Oh, the Orchid House! Oh my God, <laughs> I just. I can't, you know, like someday you're going to find me like hidden in the house um, (laughs) and I'm going to refuse to leave. You'll be drunk under the table (laughs) (laughs) among the fronds. You won't won't be the first person. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's so cool. The Orchid Display House and the Shell Museum and the Bamboo Bar were all created by Frederick Bartlett, who also designed the main house. Mm hmm. And he did that little three-room complex as a birthday gift for Evelyn in the 30s. All right. Very nice. Um, And then talk about the lagoon. That's really cool, too. And the cheeky hut, right? Yes. Um, We have three ponds on the property. They're freshwater. Uh, One we call the lily pond, and it's a, a round um, pond. The, all these ponds were dredged from kind of a swampy area yeah. that was here originally. Um, so there's the round one that's the lily pond, and it has a little three-sided pavilion that overlooks that, and that's where they would they put cushions down and sit in there and have their cocktails. And then there's the main slough, which is the largest of the three ponds, and that's where the bonnet lily grows. And uh, to get from the main house to the beach, through the slough, we have a little uh, chicky bridge, which is a bridge that was created by the Seminole Indians. Mm-hmm. And it has, it has a thatched top, and the, the structure of it is made of cypress logs with bark on it. And then the, the 
far north pond is the koi pond, and it has these beautiful koi fish that are quite large and, and, and very colorful. And in front of that is our um, island theater, which is another structure that they built just to have fun in. They would show home movies in there. And uh, now we do educational programs and meetings in there. Oh, and 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 you have um, – that's what I want to get into next. Let's talk about um, – a little bit about how the the house is used now. It's been it's been put into the Florida Land Trust, right? And uh, but it has to be kept in its original state. So how do you all um, keep that vision while also you know being able to maintain the house and have events and and weddings and, and such there? It, it's always a challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mrs. Bartlett gave the property to the Florida Trust for historic preservation. Thank God. <laughs> in, yeah, in, in the early 80s, and she said she would have a lifetime use of it. Well, she lived to be two months shy of 110. <laughs> awesome. So people, people had no idea she was going to live that long. Right. Um, however, uh, she only lived on the site in the winter. Mm-hmm. She had a mansion in Beverly, Massachusetts, and a farm in Essex, Massachusetts, ah. where she would spend the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when she was in residence, we we were only open for tours during the summer months, right. and only by only by appointment. Right. And then when she died, um, we were able to utilize the entire house. Uh, we converted the office, the bedrooms upstairs, to office space and collection storage. Uh, though we do retain uh, three of the bedrooms exactly as she left them. Mm-hmm. Bonnet House is unusual for a historic house museum because we have all of the original furnishings. When Mrs. Bartlett died, she left everything to us. You can open her drawers, and it has all her the stuff just as if she just walked out the door. That's so unusual for a historic house museum. Yes. Uh, most of them, they sell off the stuff, and then you have to go out to antique stores <laughs> and purchase things that right. of the period. But yes. I never know what exactly was in the house. Oh, and her taste was impeccable, in my opinion. I mean, it was so interesting. Um, both her and her husband had such interesting, him being an artist, and she as well had an artistic bent, you know, and being collectors and having the resources to be able to you know, well, collect. these are big resources. Yeah. I mean, you have the old guitarist by Pablo Picasso. Well, though, that's not there. That's what they donated. That was in their collection. Oh, okay. And they gave it to the right. Art Institute of Chicago. Okay. I was going to say, because here's uh, Sunday Afternoon by oh, yeah. George Seurat. That was in their collection and, that and they. Is, yeah. Do you have the Cezanne painting of the Bonnet House, or is that donated as well? Uh, there was a Cezanne painting that was left to Bonnet House, but. We sold it mm-hmm. okay. to, to use to maintain the money to maintain the sure. estate. As you can imagine, it costs so much money to keep up with this place because we're right on the beach. Yes. Um, metals that wouldn't rust anywhere else or corrode just fall apart here. Where It's constant maintenance. It's like painting the Brooklyn Bridge. Right. You know, once once you're done, you have to go back and start all over again. Yeah. yeah. Well, the beauty of it, too, is that they're so you know it's so unique fort lauderdale is like very developed as most of south florida is and when i discovered bonnet house um i was just blown away by it because it it's a it's a large piece of property right on the beach you have access to the beach right from the property and the idea that something like that would be kept in that state with the original furnishings, with, you know, I mean, it is, you know, developers w- were salivating at the time, oh, I'm sure, you know, like. They still are. I'm sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> what I love is that it speaks to the opulence of the era and the idea of a summer home that reflects the culture of the world. You know, right. travel, collecting, um, philosophy, art, yeah. right? Yet is simple. It's not yeah. like a Newport mansion. I want people to understand that it's not like the breakers. Right. It's made out of cinder blocks. Yeah. You know, it's like a Caribbean house, mm-hmm. you know, put in. And it, and it was 
designed by a non-architect, you know, right. by a painter. Uh-huh. Um, and it's so it so reflects their unique vision. They 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 lived well, but they also lived privately and simply. So yes. I can't I can't say I can't state enough how much um, I love it. How much I want to encourage people to go. I wish we had more time, Denise. To we could I could talk to you for hours about it, as I did when I visited you. People should just visit it. Can you give the website and the information about how they can find the bonded house online? Okay, our website is www.bonnethouse.org. Great. And, and I'll I, give you all the information about tours and uh, yeah. the different programming we offer. You have great, And people can have weddings there. If you're thinking about a place to have an event, it's a spectacular, spectacular place. Very, very unique, very evocative of the old Florida, mm-hmm. you know, that is, that is rapidly disappearing. Well, Denise, thank you so much for being on the show today. I uh, will probably visit again next time I'm in Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> well, it was a pleasure talking to you, and I do invite everyone to come visit us when you're in Fort Lauderdale. Thank you. Thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, we'll be right back. We're going to go to, uh, to Yuma, Arizona, so stay tuned. Welcome back to We Dig Plants on Heritage Radio Network. I asked Dave to please play, play some, some, southwestern. some southwestern spaghetti, western music. So we just left Fort Lauderdale. Now we're going to go to another zone, play, zone 10 place, completely different from Florida, Yuma, Arizona. So when I was looking for a place that was different, I wanted something that was in the same zone but kind of radically different and i'm always drawn to places that are on the edges or borders of things i always like to go to like fringe it's called fringe fringe, fringe. i didn't want to use that term because i don't think of myself as a fringy person no but, you're not but <laughs> there we go um but i like coastlines i like river banks mm-hmm. i like edges you know so you must right on the border of california Right at the confluence of the Colorado and the Gila Rivers. And I wanted to learn more about what agriculture and farming might be like there. Um, and Arizona is a really diverse state in terms of climate. Um, when I was looking at the zone, the USDA zone map of it, it goes from like zone 10, where we're going to be talking about today, all the way to zone four, four. near yeah. Flagstaff, where it can dip down to negative 20 in the winter. So our guest today um, has spent a lot of time in the area. His name is Humberto Hernandez, and he's going to share his experience of growing and farming in zone 10. And he is the director of the Yuma County Agricultural Center. Humberto, welcome to the show. Welcome, uh- We're ready for you guys. Great. So um, I understand that you've lived in Yuma a long time and have a lot of knowledge about the region. Can you tell us a little bit about your history in the county and what drew you to work in agriculture? Well, uh, I actually come from Mexico. Uh, 1967 was our first uh, year we came into the U.S. Mm -hmm. when my family immigrated. And I've been... I've been with the university for 32 years in the uh, research aspect, so I've been farming for about 32 years. Wow! I I got I got started in, in agriculture in the uh, since I was a kid, riding to our high school every day, a 45 minute drive. So 
I, we drove through fields every single day back and forth. So wow. I always wanted to get into uh, agriculture, and that's what I major in, into agronomy at the University of Arizona. And I've been with them since then. Wow. So you have, a d- you have deep knowledge. Now, when, when most people think of Yuma, they think of the movie 410 to Yuma and about the, the, the prison garrison, right? But as I read yeah. more about, about the natural history of the place, I was really struck by how unique um, its geography was. So the county is basically in the floodplain of the Colorado River. Can you describe the land and the landscape to our listeners and, and how its geography impact its history and development. Sure, um, Yuma County is, is a it's a good sized county, not small counties like you guys are used to in the back east. I know. Uh, <laughs> but the, I say ninety percent of our land is just a very desert, uh, dry type of land. Right. The the only fertile land that we do have, which is the very rich, uh, heavy clay soils, uh, that's on the beds of the river, Colorado right. River and the Gila River. Right. We actually have two rivers that come into Yuma. That's right. And the, uh, the, the good fertile land is, is land that's been deposited for millions of years from the Colorado. Uh, you could say that a lot of the rich soil from the Grand Canyon is actually here with us. <laughs> yeah, so that, right. That's what kind of created the Yuma Valley. Uh-huh. The very, very heavy clay. And, but we, we also farm on the Mesa, which is about 120 feet higher. And that's a very, very coarse sand. But our crops up there are very different than what we normally ha- uh, do harvest in the valley. Up in the Mesa, we basically harvest more of our citrus right. and our hay, which is alfalfa. That's the only forage that we grow up there. Right. Uh, and in the valley, that's a rich soil, so that's where we do a lot of our vegetables. Um, uh, in the summer, of course, is very different than in the winter. And uh, so the crops vary. You know, we do grow 365 days out of the year. We don't get a break, so we're constantly farming. So it's a very, very diverse uh, valley here on, on what we grow. Uh, you know, in the winter, we're the winter capital of the leafy greens. We supply over 90% of the uh, leafy greens to the U.S. and abroad. Wow. Yes, so we, yeah. We, we're well known for that. Uh, our growers take a lot of pride in growing their crops. Uh, if you ever have a chance to come to Yuma, are you going to be able to be showcased the, the best farming practices uh, here in the U.S., uh, our growers are, are very, very, uh, they take a lot of pride in how they grow their crops here in the Yuma area. So you're saying that if I, if I get lettuce in December in New York City, there's a good chance that it came from Yuma County, Arizona, right? 90, probably 90 to 95% that it came from Yuma. That's interesting. So we have to talk about how how farming, the reliability of farming became, is possible there. And that has to do with the dams. Right, Humberto? I mean, that's without the dams, that yeah. wouldn't have been possible. Can you tell listeners a little bit about about the dams in the area and how that impacted the farming? Sure. There's three major dams uh, on the Colorado River, which is the Hoover, the Coolidge and the Parker dams. They're the ones that hold all the water coming up from the Rockies, from yeah. the northern Rockies. Mm-hmm. Now, we do have uh, some diversion dams, like Imperial Dam, which is the one that holds the water into the Yuma uh, Valley here, and, and that's her source of water. And then the very last dam, which is just half a mile from where I sit here in my office, and that's the Morelos Dam, which is the very, very last dam on the Colorado River. And that's more, it's also a diversion dam that that since the, the last drop of the Colorado River flowing down into the irrigation system for the Mexicali and the San Luis Valley in Mexico. Okay. From, from the Morales Dam, the Colorado River does not flow at all. There's not a drop going down the Colorado River, which is unfortunate. Right. Because, you know, we have a huge delta on the Colorado River where it meets the uh, Sea of Cortez. Right. And not having a river flowing down in there, it, it, you know, it creates chaos for the fauna and flora from that delta. Yes. That, the, yes. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was saying that's exactly right. That's that's one of the issues. I mean, water. <laughs> yeah. You know, because before the dams, the river would flood, right? And yes. um, you couldn't reliably yeah. farm in a place on a on a, any kind of commercial level if you had unpredictable 
flooding situations, right? Not only flooding, but the river was always changing its course. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. And, yeah. and not yeah. having a river that would just follow a course, it was hard to keep Mexico and the U.S. on a borderline because the border was between what would be the normal channel of the river. Right. Half, half one side and half the other side. Right. So whenever the river moved its channel, Mexico would gain ground or, or, or the U.S. would lose ground or vice versa. So, so having the dams and having the water up there, you know, it's been pretty much livelihood for us here. We wouldn't be able to exist without it. Uh, we have fertile land, but if we didn't have control of that water, there was just no way we could farm it. Yeah, and there was something specific to the geography of Yuma, too, because doesn't it have to do with the cliffs, too, Umberto? There's something um, that's that was the kind of natural place where the 49ers came during the gold rush, because crossing the Colorado River in other places was almost impossible. Yuma was like the only place, you know, geographically where people could cross. Right. Yes. And, and it dates back to Father Kino. When we still have one of those old churches sitting on one of the hills where the main cross was, we actually had two hills where the Colorado River had to flow through, and that was our thinnest point, and that became the uh, the uh, area to uh, cross the river when people were moving in from the gold rush and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had the Yuma Fortress that was built here, you know, to protect people coming in and crossing by, and not only that, the Colorado River back then was also a, a navigational for trade. Yeah, uh, we had steamboats coming up uh, all the way from the Sea of Cortez. They would come up the Colorado River and, and go up north from from Yuma, and that's how we moved a lot of the produce and and things that were being uh, right. being grown back then. Right, right. Can you tell us a little bit about the soil, Umberto? Like, what what's the soil like there? Okay, the uh, there's you know there, our soil is very variable. But you can pretty much put it in two types, which is a very heavy clay and very coarse sand. Mm-hmm. And then it's always just a mixture of both of them in between. But basically, that's that's our, our terrain. It's just a very flat on the valley, and and also on the secondary uh, flood zone or plain, which is just very just very coarse sand. And what do you do so for not, organic matter? I'm sorry? What do you do for organic matter? Oh, to improve the, the soil. Well, for organic matter, we always are trying to bring in organic matter by the use of a steer manure or mm. poultry manure. Uh-huh. Our soils are less than 2% organic matter. We, mm-hmm. we don't have any organic matter in our soils, both in the valley and, the, and, and uh, even worse on the very coarse sand of the very dry desert. So organic matter is always an issue, so we're always trying to bring in uh, organic matter through those means, you know. Cool. But it's good for lemons, right? The the mesas and the coarse sand is great for lemons. Yeah, yeah. Our our lemons uh, basically are grown on the on the uh, mesa. We also used to grow them in the valley, but because of market uh, ups and downs, you know, it's yeah. basically just on the mesa now. The uh, very coarse sand, you know, you just have to micromanage your your fertility program better. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. You, have to, you know, it's not. You don't you don't practice the same management as you do in the valley because in the valley, having a very he- uh, heavy clay, your moisture stays there longer and your nutrients are also tied to the soil sites. Where right. on the very coarse sand, when you irrigate, you flood irrigate, which is what we do up in the mesa. Right. You you tend to leach your nutrients down the the coarse sand quite quite uh, readily. So you have to micromanage by every time you irrigate or every other irrigation, you always try to put in uh, your fertilizers in there. Okay. Smaller amounts every time, but, but it's just a way of managing things so that it works for, for the two different types of soils that we have. Mm-hmm. And what are some of your weather challenges in Yuma? Yes, <laughs> let's talk about that. Weather challenges? Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, being a, a dry desert area, you know, we still have some uh, desert challenges. During the uh, winter, fall, when we have our produce going on, you know, any rain that comes in will up, you know, it'll mess up our, our uh, harvesting. Uh-huh. Uh, usually we don't get long uh, type or heavy rains, but every, every time, once in every every now, we'll, we'll get a, an inch, and that's enough to put us maybe for two days out of the fields. Mm-hmm. Now, some mm-hmm. growers, you know, when the market's going, and the demand there from the brokers to, to have that produce available to them, 
they will work through uh, rainy, rain and, and through mud. We just have to adapt of bringing more tractors in or, or different type of tractors like the uh, cats or whatever. But they'll, they'll move the produce out. They'll, they'll harvest. Unless it's a really terrible rain, then, you know, we'll stop. But and what about we, we don't. and what about droughts? Right, I'm sure you guys get some crazy long droughts there. Yeah, we're uh, not we're not talking being, being uh, dry spells. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it doesn't affect us at all because we depend on the Colorado River because yeah. you've got the river, right? And yeah, it, it'll affect us when we do have a, a, a huge drought where it's not snowing up in the Rocky Mountains right. and our water levels on the dams are going down. This year, we were actually. We were actually uh, we were very very close into the uh, Bureau of Land Management trying. To, uh, they were probably would have started rationing water up north. You know, Yuma is, is kind of favorable because we have some of the uh, not the oldest, but probably the second to the oldest rights to the Colorado River. Ah, yeah. So, you know, we're we're in a better situation than, than a lot of folks upstream. Uh-huh. That's really interesting. Yeah, water rights as a whole. We could spend, like, an oh, entire that's a show whole just about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, But I want to end the show, because we could talk for hours about this, but I want to end the show about, I want to talk about native plants and how, essentially, damming the river, how that has impacted um the native flora and fauna, as you, you touched on that a little bit, Humberto. Um, yes. And tell us a little bit about how it's impacted that and, and, and what efforts, if any, are being made to, to remediate that situation. Okay. The, the only effort that I know of is that about two years ago, the University of Arizona and some uh, Bureau of Land Management and some other agencies got together and, and, and they were able to squeeze in a a demand for the uh, for the bureau to release some water down the delta, okay, into the delta, and to try to gain back some of that flora and fauna, trying to reestablish it. You know, the when you drive the river up, you know, people try encroaching on the channel of the river, right? And it's hard to move water downstream, and I think one of the uh, I think one of the reasons they did that too was to try to see the channel was still open down. Down down the the river, mm-hmm. and I haven't I haven't heard of anything else being done right now. But I think there's a lot that needs to be done for that. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the Sea of Cortez, which is very rich in uh, in fish. You know, and and some of our species out there are in the bridge of extinct. Ah, uh, and overfish, and are you know we grow some of the best shrimp in the world, and the Colorado River is the source of food for the shrimp. Right. Actually, the shrimp will migrate up north into the delta, and that's where they lay their young, and they flow down into the Sea of Cortez as they grow, and they get fished out. Right. Wow. That's, that's, a, that's an area there that the Mexican government is working a lot and trying to reestablish. You know, the U.S. and Mexico form an ecosystem yes. uh, for the protection area there for both the fauna and the flora on the lower desert or actually hired uh, the Sonoran Desert. That's right. And it includes part of the U.S. and part of Mexico, where and they you... don't allow any any uh, uh, people taking anything from it. They have to respect everything that's out there. They, right, they right. They respect the fauna and the flora. And nature doesn't to... nature doesn't respect political boundaries, you know. So, <laughs> well, Humberto, I'm sorry that we have to cut it short. We've run out of time. What a fascinating place, though! And I thank know. you for all the work that you do. Yes, and your dedication to, feed... to growing our food. Yeah, you know, to feed us. Every time oh, I, you're welcome. Every you time know, we, we, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, every time I buy greens in the winter, I'm going to think about yeah. Yuma County. And lemons. <laughs> we're, also, we're, we're also the biggest date maju grower producers. We grow the best pasta, durum wheat, and, and we also have uh, agriculture is our main resource here in the Yuma area. Yes, it employs a lot of people. And we're going to put a link to the Ag Center website um, on our on our um, Facebook. On our Facebook so that people can read about it because it's in very interesting stories. Thank you so much, Umberto, for taking the time. Thank you, ladies. 
and happy gardening. Yes, and thank you for listening to We Dig Plants. We'll see you in about a month when we go to Zone 9. Nine. Thanks for listening. See you in the garden. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.